According to many Muslims, the Bible is full of prophecies about Muhammad. Christian apologists have spent a great deal of time refuting this claim, but as I will show in this lecture, the Bible does contain clear prophecies about Muhammad. Muslims have simply missed them. The Muslim search for prophecies supporting Islam has been sloppy, and as a result, defenders of Islam have failed to provide a single well-evidenced example of a biblical prediction of their prophet. Thus, after we briefly examine Muhammad's claim that the Bible supports him, we'll see, one, that the standard biblical verses used by Muslims to support their prophet are extremely problematic for Islam, and two, that Christian apologists are wrong when they say that the Bible is silent about Muhammad. The Quran states very clearly in Surah 7, 157, that both the Old and New Testaments contain prophecies about Muhammad. The verse says, those who follow the messenger, the unlettered prophet, whom they find mentioned in their own scriptures, in the law and the gospel, it is they who will prosper. The Quran also declares in Surah 61.6 that Jesus predicted the coming of Muhammad. The passage reads, And remember, Jesus, the son of Mary, said, O children of Israel, I am the messenger of Allah sent to you, confirming the law which came before me and giving glad tidings of a messenger to come after me, whose name shall be Ahmad, or Muhammad. Similarly, early Muslim writings suggest that the Bible contains prophecies about Muhammad. We read this in Sahih al-Bukhari and Ibn Ishaq. Sahih al-Bukhari number 2125 reads, narrated Ibn Yasar, I met Abdullah ibn Amr and asked him, Tell me about the description of Allah's messenger which is mentioned in the Torah. He replied, Yes, by Allah, he is described in the Torah with some of the qualities attributed to him in the Quran. In Ibn Ishaq we read this, I was told the story of Abdullah bin Salam, a learned rabbi, by one of his family. He said, When I heard the apostle, when I heard about the apostle, I knew by his description, name, and the time at which he appeared that he was the one we were waiting for, and I rejoiced greatly thereat. I emerged and said, O Jews, fear God and accept what he has sent to you. For by God you know that he is the apostle of God. You will find him described in your Torah and even named. Also in Ibn Ishaq we read this. So Heraclius ordered the Roman generals, who were Christians, to assemble in a room and commanded that the doors should be fastened. Then he looked down on them from an upper chamber, for he was afraid of them, and said, O Romans, I have brought you together for a good purpose. This man, i.e. Muhammad, has written me a letter summoning me to his religion. By God, he is truly the prophet whom we expect and find in our books. So come and let us follow him and believe in him, that it may be well with us in this world and the next. So the early Muslim sources tell us that there were prophecies about Muhammad in the Bible. And they tell us that these, that these prophecies are crystal clear. They're so clear that Jews and Christians were waiting for Muhammad to show up. And they could recognize him as a prophet as soon as they realized how he lined up perfectly with their prophecies. So we can formulate the Muslim argument as follows. Premise one, if the Bible contains clear prophecies declaring that someone is a prophet, that person must be a prophet. Premise two, the Bible contains clear prophecies declaring that Muhammad is a prophet. And the conclusion, therefore, Muhammad was a prophet. Now, I have no objections to the first premise. I think it's interesting, though, that this argument grants authority to the Old and New Testaments, Muslims often claim that the Bible has been corrupted, and yet Muhammad trusted it enough to base his prophethood on it. So I'm fine with the first premise. Let's examine the second premise. Does the Bible contain clear prophecies about Muhammad? Muslims have spent nearly 14 centuries looking for them, and while dozens and dozens of verses have been suggested as candidates, only a handful are now being seriously put forward as biblical references to Muhammad. Of this handful, two are most common. Moses' prediction of a prophet similar to himself and Jesus' prediction of the coming comforter. 
Since these are Islam's most popular examples of biblical support for Muhammad, I'm going to call these two prophecies the major prophecies. The remaining less important ones uh, I'll refer to as the minor prophecies. In his note on Surah 157 of the Quran, commentator Yusuf Ali offers the following evidence for the claim that Muhammad is mentioned in the law and the gospel. In this verse is a prefiguring to Moses of the Arabian messenger, the last and greatest of the messengers of Allah. In the reflex of the Torah, as now accepted by the Jews, Moses says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. The only prophet who brought a Sharia law like that of Moses was Muhammad al-Mustafa, and he came to the house of Ismail, the brother of Isaac, the father of Israel. In the reflex of the gospel as now accepted by the Christians, Christ promised another comforter. The Greek word paraclete, which the Christians interpret as referring to the Holy Spirit, is by our doctors taken to be paraclite, which would be the Greek form of Ahmad. So, to defend the validity of the Quran on this issue, Ali offers a single prophecy from the Old Testament and another from the New Testament. Together, these two predictions form the one-two punch of the Muslim argument from biblical prophecy. Yet Muslims, as we'll see, have to tear both prophecies out of context in order to make them conform to the Islamic interpretation. And this is why Islamic books and pamphlets rarely quote their, uh, quote their passages in context. To quote these passages in context would refute the argument. A careful analysis will reveal the truth about these texts. The first of the major prophecies comes from Deuteronomy, where Moses predicts the rise of another prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19 reads, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he, shall, which he, which he shall, shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Muslims argue that this prophecy could only have been fulfilled by Muhammad, who, like Moses, was a lawgiver, a prophet, and a military leader. Further, the word countrymen here in Hebrew means brothers or brethren. So this prophet was to come from the brethren of the Israelites, which must be a reference to the Ishmaelites, for Ishmael was the brother of Isaac, the father of Israel. And Muhammad was an Ishmaelite, so the prophecy must refer to him. These facts, along with other similarities between Muhammad and Moses, support the identification of the prophet with Muhammad. Now, if we were to take Deuteronomy 18.15 or 18.18 all by itself, completely ignoring the rest of the book, we might have some reason to agree with the Muslim apologists on this issue. However, even a cursory examination of the context of this prophecy demonstrates the flaws in the Muslim position. First, the passage says that God will raise up a prophet like Moses because the Israelites didn't want to speak directly with God. The Israelites said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or I will die. And God replied, They have spoken well. So when verse 18.15 is taken in context, we see that the Jews were asking for a mediator, someone to stand between them and God, just as Moses did. The ultimate fulfillment of this passage would be someone who stands as a permanent mediator between God and man. While Muhammad could certainly be viewed as an intermediary of some sort, the passage seems to fit uh, more comfortably if the prophet is Jesus. At best, one could argue that Muhammad was a link in the chain of transmission from the, uh, from the Quran 
We have the link in the chain that would go from Allah to Gabriel to Muhammad and then to mankind. But this doesn't fulfill the prophecy. Muslims don't believe in the sort of mediator required by Deuteronomy 18. In Christianity, however, Jesus is a permanent mediator. As we read in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Next, Moses said that God will raise up a prophet from among you. Since he is talking to the Israelites, it sounds as if God is telling them that he will raise up a prophet from the midst of Israel. In any case, Muhammad surely wasn't raised up from among the Jews. Jesus, on the other hand, was born and raised in Israel. So the context, again, fits more comfortably if, if Moses is referring to Jesus. Third, although Muslims often claim that the term brethren must refer to the Ishmaelites, the book of Deuteronomy shows that this claim is completely false. To be sure, brethren can be used to refer to people other than the Jews, and it is used in this manner with the Edomites earlier in Deuteronomy. But they always, the text always qualifies the term brethren. It'll say, your brethren who are the Edomites. When it's used alone as just brethren, it always refers to fellow Jews. Passage um, in 15.7, Deuteronomy 15.7. Uh, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother. That this verse refers to fellow Israelites is clear from the, following, from the verses that follow. Brethren is also used regarding the selection of a king. We read in 17, 14 through 15, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen or brethren, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Now, the Jews obviously weren't being commanded to seek an Arab king here. They were commanded to get a king from their brethren, meaning a fellow Jew. Interestingly, the term brethren or countrymen is even used as a reference to other Israelites in Deuteronomy 18, the exact same chapter that Muslims are appealing to for their main prophecy about Muhammad. In, at the beginning of chapter 18, we read, the Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion. They shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. The Levites were to have no inheritance among their brethren, the other tribes of Israel. This is how chapter 18 begins, and we're never given so much as a hint that the meaning of brethren has changed so that by the time we get to verse 15, it somehow refers to Ishmaelites. Now, given this repeated use of brethren to refer to other Israelites, it's disturbing to read Muslim polemics, which claim that Ishmaelites is the only possible interpretation of brethren. Consider, for instance, what Muslim apologist Ahmed Didat says about the term brethren. The children of Isaac are the brethren of the Ishmaelites. In like manner, Muhammad is from among the brethren of the Israelites because he was a descendant of Ishmael, the son of Abraham. This is exactly as the prophecy has it, from among their brethren. There, the prophecy distinctly mentions that the coming prophet who would be like Moses must not be from the children of Israel or from among themselves but from among their brethren. Muhammad, therefore, was from among their brethren. So according to Didat, the word brethren can't possibly refer to Jews, despite the fact that that's how it's used over and over again in Deuteronomy and in the same chapter. So contrary to what Didat suggests, Moses' prophecy doesn't say that the prophet must not come from the children of Israel. Indeed, given the repeated use of brethren to refer to Israelites in Deuteronomy, especially in chapter 18, it's a wonder that anyone would ever interpret it in any other way. Didat is therefore either completely ignorant of how brethren is used in Deuteronomy 
or he's being deliberately deceptive towards his Muslim readers, knowing that few of them will actually take the time to examine his false claim. Fourth, the conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy tells us how we should interpret Moses' phrase, like unto me. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy 34, 9 through 12. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land, and for the mighty power and for the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Here, the phrase, like Moses, suggests a prophet who would speak with God face to face and perform signs and wonders in the sight of Israel. Muhammad doesn't fit either of these criteria. He claimed to have received his revelations from Gabriel, not directly from God, and he admittedly could not perform miracles, as we'll see in another lecture. Jesus, however, both performed miracles, and even the Quran acknowledges this, and spoke directly with God. As we read in John 5, 19-20, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Muhammad did not have this sort of close relationship with God. We read in uh, John eight twenty eight. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I, can, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak things as the Father taught me. In 12, 49-50, we read, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And in 14.24, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Finally, while Muslims appeal to Deuteronomy 18.15-19 as evidence for their prophet, they would do well to read the next verse, which, when combined with a certain embarrassing event from Muhammad's life, uh, turns out to be a clear proof against the prophethood of Muhammad. In Deuteronomy 18.20, God declares, But the prophet, which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. Here God gives us two criteria for recognizing a false prophet. One, if a person delivers a revelation that doesn't come from God, the person is a false prophet. And two, if the person speaks in the name of other gods, the person is a false prophet. Interestingly, Muhammad meets both criteria, for he delivered the infamous satanic verses, or the verses that he gave to his followers in the Quran as part of the Quran, and then declared were inspired by Satan. Since these verses didn't come from God, Muhammad meets the first criteria. And since the verses promoted polytheism, Muhammad meets the second criterion as well. So the very passage that Muslims claim as their primary biblical prophecy about Muhammad turns out to proclaim that Muhammad can't be a prophet at all. True, Moses and Muhammad had some similarities. Nevertheless, when we examine the context of Deuteronomy, we find that these similarities don't count for much. Moses told the Israelites that God would send them another intercessor, in the New Testament, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Moses told the Israelites that God would raise up a prophet from the midst of them. Whereas Jesus was born in Israel, Muhammad was born in what is now Saudi Arabia. Moses told the Israelites that the prophet would come from among their brethren, a term that is used over and over again to refer to their fellow Israelites. Jesus was a Jew, yet Muhammad was an Arab. Moses was known as a miracle worker who spoke directly to God. It's Jesus, not Muhammad, who is like Moses in these respects. 
On top of all of this, Deuteronomy 18.20 rules out Muhammad as a prophet of God. Now, Muslims are free to believe that uh, Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 refers to Muhammad, but when they offer this verse as evidence of Muhammad's prophethood, the burden of proof is on them. Since the major characteristics of the prophet in Deuteronomy apply most directly to Jesus, Muslims need to find another major prophecy to sustain the Quranic claim to biblical support. At this point, Muslims turn to the book of John, where Jesus predicts the coming comforter. In 14, 15 through 18, we read, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, com- another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you. As orphans, I will come to you. In fourteen twenty-five through 26, we read, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And in fifteen twenty-six through 27, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Oddly enough, Muslims see in these passages predictions about the coming of Muhammad. Muslims reason that since the Comforter will not come unless Jesus returns to the Father, this prophecy cannot possibly be referring to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was already present in Jesus. So Jesus must have, must have been predicting the rise of another prophet, and for some reason Muhammad is the only possible candidate. Such a claim is, to say the least, quite baffling to anyone familiar with John's gospel. First, Muslims draw this prophecy from a book that begins by declaring that Jesus is God and that he created all things, in John 1, 1 through 3. In the book of John, Jesus claims to have existed before Abraham, 858, and describes himself as the latter between heaven and earth, in 151. A blind man who receives his sight worships Jesus in 9, 35 through 38, and Thomas calls Jesus my Lord, my God in 2028. 20, Jesus is crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected, events that are all, all at odds with the Quran. Further, in the very chapters to which Muslims appeal for their predictions about Muhammad, Jesus proclaims that he is the only way to God in 14.6, that anyone who has seen him has seen the Father in 14.9, that he is in the Father and that the Father is in him in 14.11, that he can answer prayers in 14.14, and that we cannot bear fruit unless we abide in him. We might wonder why Muslims appeal to a book that is so diametrically opposed to Islam. But we have to remember that Muhammad declared that there are prophecies about him in the New Testament. Muslims are therefore forced to grasp at whatever they can find to vindicate Muhammad's claims. Second, the three passages from John repeatedly identify the Comforter as the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Truth. Yet Muslims argue that these verses simply can't refer to the Holy Spirit. Maulana Ali says, The terms of this prophecy do not warrant the conclusion that they are applicable to the Holy Ghost. If I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. Are words too clear to need any comment? The New Testament says that John was filled with the Holy Ghost even before he was born. Then it speaks of Jesus himself as receiving the Holy Ghost in the shape of a dove. Thus, the Holy Ghost used to visit men before the time of Jesus as well as in his own time. This argument clearly misses the point of Jesus' prediction. Jesus acknowledges that the Spirit was already with them. He says, you know him because he abides with you. The prophecy was that the Spirit would be in them and dwell with them forever. This was something entirely new, and it was by no means invalidated because the Spirit was already in Jesus. Third, as we just saw, Jesus says that the Comforter comforter would be with his disciples forever. In no sense was Muhammad ever with Jesus' disciples, let alone with them permanently. Fourth, according to the prophecy, the world cannot receive the Comforter because it cannot see him. Thousands of people saw Muhammad during his lifetime because he was visible. 
Thus, the invisible comforter cannot be the visible prophet of Islam. Fifth, Jesus tells the disciples that the comforter was already with them. While the Holy Spirit was with Jesus' disciples, Muhammad wasn't born for more than five centuries after this prophecy and therefore couldn't have been with them in any sense. Sixth, the comforter was to be in the disciples. Muhammad is not in Jesus' followers and never will be. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, filled the believers at Pentecost and has been in Christians ever since. Seventh, Jesus said that he would send the comforter from the Father. Muslims do not believe that Muhammad was sent by Jesus. They believe that Muhammad was sent by God. So unless Muslims are willing to grant that Jesus is God, they should not accept this as a prophecy about Muhammad. Finally, prior to his ascension, Jesus predicted that his followers would be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence, Acts 1.5. The Holy Spirit came to Jesus' followers shortly after his ascension to the Father. When the day of Pentecost, this is Acts 2, 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So the fulfillment of this prophecy came within a matter of days. Muhammad came more than 500 years later. Putting all of this together, we see that Muhammad could not have been the comforter. He was not with the apostles. He was not in the apostles. He was not with them forever. He was not invisible. He was not sent by Jesus, and he did not come quickly as Jesus said he would. Yet the Holy Spirit matches this description perfectly. Jesus identified the Comforter as the Holy Spirit, who was with the disciples, was in them at Pentecost, was invisible, came quickly, was sent by Jesus, and has been with Christians for nearly 2,000 years. Given the facts, Muslims who apply these verses to Muhammad should be ashamed of themselves. Although the most popular Muslim prophecies clearly fail upon closer inspection, Muslim apologists have offered a number of other weaker examples of predictions about Muhammad. They are less common because in context they typically have nothing to do with a coming prophet or the rise of another religion. Muslims therefore have to force their own meaning into these prophecies, but they do so at the expense of their own integrity. There are three other so-called biblical prophecies about the rise of Muhammad we should look at. There are more, but these three will give us the general idea of the Muslim approach. Pay careful attention to the following tactic by Malana Ali. He quotes a promise made to Abraham and cleverly combines this with a later promise about Ishmael, and he goes on to say that this, first, that this is the first prediction of the rise of Islam. Muslims believe that Muhammad was a descendant of Ishmael, so they're constantly looking for prophecies and passages about Ishmael. Watch what Ali does. Genesis 12, 1-3. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Ali then quotes, immediately afterwards, Genesis 17, 20. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. Ali considers this to, again, be the first prophecy announcing the advent of the holy prophet Muhammad. Now, I quoted the first passage in context, but I left the second passage as it occurs in Ali's book. The way Ali quotes this, he makes it sound as if God's promise to Abraham was to go through Ishmael. But watch what happens when we quote the passage in context, i.e. with the verses that immediately precede and immediately follow. This is what we read. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. 
As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So to support his case, Ali quotes a promise that God made to Abraham, then quotes a verse about Ishmael, claiming that it shows that the promise refers to Ishmael and his descendants, i.e. Muhammad. Yet in quoting the verse, he leaves out all the surrounding material, which states that the covenant was to be made not with Ishmael, but with Isaac. Knowing that few of his readers will be so bold as to actually look up the references he cites, Ali has no difficulty wrenching this verse from its context, giving it a meaning uh, very different from what we find in Genesis. I'll just say now that when a Muslim presents you with a verse of the Bible in any situation, always examine the context, because Muslims are almost always distorting the meaning Nevertheless, Muslims still argue that this passage predicts the rise of a great nation from Ishmael's descendants and that such a prediction can only refer to the rise of Islam. But the fulfillment of this prophecy took place in the book of Genesis, not 2,600 years later in Mecca. We read in 25, 12 through 16, Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbil, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, Hadad, and Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes. So the prophecy was fulfilled during the time of the book of Genesis. Again, not 2,600 years later in Arabia. Another, prophet, uh, another prophecy Muslims appeal to comes from the book of Deuteronomy 33, 1 through 2. And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Notice that this passage says absolutely nothing about prophets. It is a description of God's victory in bringing the Israelites into the Holy Land. God was with them as they passed Sinai, Seir, and Paran. Indeed, the language used by Moses to describe God's help is common in the Old Testament. Uh, here's what we read in Judges 5, uh, verses 4 through 5. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. And in Psalm 68 we read, O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, as at Sinai, in holiness. Yet Muslim apologists claim that Moses' words here at the beginning of this blessing aren't a description of God's victory. Instead, they are a prediction of three great prophets. Ali argues, Coming from Sinai refers to the appearance of Moses, while rising up from Seir refers to the conquest of Seir by David. Now, Paran is admittedly the ancient name for the land of Hejaz, where arose Moses from among the descendants of Ishmael. Most Muslim commentators, however, believe that Seir refers to the prophethood of Jesus, not to the conquest of Seir by King David. So Jamal Badawi claims... Deuteronomy 33, 1-2 combines references to Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. It speaks of God, i.e. God's revelation, coming from Sinai, rising from Seir, probably the village of Sire near Jerusalem, and shining forth from Paran. According to Genesis 21, 21, the wilderness of Paran was the place where Ishmael settled, i.e. Arabia, specifically Mecca. These interpretations are full of difficulties, 
Moses' blessing begins by saying that the Lord, not prophets, came from Sinai, rose up from Seir, and shined forth from Mount Paran. To say that this really refers to prophets requires an absolutely unjustified leap of interpretation, especially since similar language is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe God's victories over Israel's enemies. Further, while God gave a revelation at Sinai, the Muslim interpretation of Seir are problematic. Ali holds that it refers to David's conquest of Seir, but what in the world does this have to do with the rise of some prophet or the giving of any sort of revelation? Badawi says that the reference to Seir probably refers to the village of Sair near Jerusalem. Uh, this view is absolutely preposterous. The Pentateuch mentions Seir numerous times as a place where the Edomites settled. And the same word is used in Deuteronomy 33. Needless to say, the Edomites didn't settle in the village of Sire near Jerusalem. And this makes it impossible to link Jesus to Seir. Additionally, Paran, near Mecca, according to Muslims, is also mentioned several times in the Torah. Numbers 10.12, And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. In 12.16, Afterward, however, the people moved out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. 13.3, So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them who were the heads of the sons of Israel. In 13.26, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And in Deuteronomy 1.1, These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. Mount Paran is in northwestern Sinai, a long way from Mecca. But just for fun, let's grant the Muslim claim that Mount Paran refers to Mecca. Even if Paran were the land of Muhammad, as Badawi claims, the Torah would simply be telling us here that the Israelites spent time there during their flight from Egypt and that the fiery pillar of the glory of God settled there for a time. It makes sense then to think that Moses' report that the Lord shined forth from Mount Paran refers to the Lord literally shining forth from Mount Paran and that the passage has absolutely nothing to do with Muhammad figuratively shining forth with the Quran in Mecca. A final prophecy Muslims use comes from Isaiah. Isaiah 21, 13 through 15. The burden upon Arabia. In the forest in Arabia shall ye lodge, O traveling com companies of Dedanim. The inhabitants of the land of Tima brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the grievousness of war. According to Ali, this burden upon Arabia is a clear prophecy about Muhammad. Here's what he says. In the first place, the word Arabia is by itself significant enough. By the way, as, as uh, Jay Smith often point out, points out, anytime Muslims see the word Arabia or camel in the Old Testament, they declare that it is a prophecy about Muhammad. So again, in the first place, the word Arabia is by itself significant enough. Then the mention of one who uh, fled shed still further light on the object of the prophecy. The history of the world records but one such flight that has won the importance of a red-letter event, the flight of the holy prophet Muhammad from Mecca. A yet clearer testimony, however, is contained in the words, he fled from drawn swords. History confirms that the holy prophet Muhammad fled from Mecca while his house was still surrounded by bloodthirsty enemies with drawn swords ready to fall upon him in a body as soon as he came out. These two authoritative facts of history, supplemented by direct mention of the land of Arabia as the birthplace of the promised prophet, furnished an indisputable clue that the prophecy refers to the holy prophet Muhammad. Now, before we agree with Ali that this prophecy is indisputable, perhaps we should read the next two verses, which conveniently 
which he conveniently leaves out of his quotation. For thus the Lord said to me, In a year, as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate, and the remainder of the number of bowmen, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, will be few. For the Lord, God of Israel, has spoken. The verses that Ali omits, once again from his quotation, provide a time frame for when the prophecy was to be fulfilled. The fulfillment was to be, t- was, the fulfillment was to take place within a year of this prophecy. We can't know the exact date that this prophecy was given, uh, but we know that Isaiah wrote during the expansion of the Assyrian Empire and that the Assyrians began invading uh, Israel, uh, well, began invading a- uh, Arabia in 732 B.C. Besides this, the inhabitants of Tima lived approximately 400 miles north of Mecca, so it's difficult to imagine how the prophecy could apply to Muhammad's flight from Mecca. It seems more reasonable then to conclude that Isaiah simply prophesied about the Assyrian Empire's attack on Arabia that occurred during his own lifetime, not about Muhammad's flight from Mecca more than a thousand years later. Again, Muslim apologists offer a few additional prophecies, but they all suffer from the same problems as the ones we've examined. After evaluating five biblical prophecies about Muhammad, we can see that the Muslim method consists of the following steps. Step one, find any verse in the Bible that can be interpreted by a stretch of the imagination as a prophecy about Muhammad. Step two, wrench the verse from its context, ignoring the verses that precede it and those that follow. Step three, ignore all obvious commonsensical interpretations of the prophecy, especially those that were fulfilled shortly after the prophecy was given. And step four, popularize the prophecy and the Muslim interpretation of it in books, pamphlets, sermons, and internet articles, knowing that few people will ever actually read the passage. I confess that I find this methodology to be absolutely appalling, but it seems to come quite naturally to many Muslim apologists. However, we have to remember that it isn't completely their fault. Muhammad claimed that the Bible is full of prophecies about the rise of Islam, So Muslims are doing best to find those prophecies. They spent nearly 14 centuries looking for at least two unambiguous predictions, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, yet all their attempts have failed. Now this presents an enormous problem for Islam because this lack of biblical support leads to a devastating conclusion for Islam. Since Muhammad claimed that the Bible predicts the rise of Islam, The following argument refutes Muhammad's prophethood. Premise 1. If Muhammad was a true prophet, the Bible must contain numerous clear prophecies about him, because this is what he claimed. Premise 2. There are no clear prophecies about Muhammad in the Bible. Conclusion. Therefore, Muhammad was not a true prophet. Of course, this means that the Muslim support for the Muslim search for biblical support has actually backfired and shown that the religion is false. But perhaps such a conclusion may be too hasty, for in reality, the Bible does contain clear prophecies about Muhammad. Muslims have simply overlooked them. Consider the following passages from the New Testament, Matthew seven fifteen through 16 Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Matthew 24, 9 through 11. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen through 15. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of, uh, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared into their own conscience as with a branding iron. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. For the time will come when they will not endure, sound doctrine, 
but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. These verses don't have to be applied just to Muhammad, uh, yet without a doubt, Muhammad is a fulfillment of many New Testament prophecies and principles. First, Jesus said that false prophets come in sheep's clothing but are actually ravenous wolves. Muhammad fits this criterion better than anyone else in history. He convinced his followers that he was the greatest moral example in all of history, yet he murdered countless people, took part in the slave trade, allowed husbands to beat their wives, allowed his men to have sex with their female slaves, had at least nine wives at one time, admittedly proclaimed verses from Satan, and had sex with a nine-year-old girl. If Muhammad doesn't fulfill Jesus' prophecy, then who does? Next, Jesus said that false prophets would arise and that they would deceive many. There are currently more than a billion Muslims in the world, and Islam is one of the world's fastest-growing religions. This means that Muhammad is the greatest false prophet of all time and the most obvious fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Third, the Apostle Paul said that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. If Muhammad had been aware of this, perhaps he would have trusted his first instinct when a spirit claiming to be Gabriel suddenly appeared to him. Muhammad's first impression was that he was under demonic attack. This is a clear fulfillment of, of Paul's words. Fourth, Paul said that people would give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Muhammad's infamous satanic verses provide a striking example of this. The prophet of Islam received revelations saying that it's okay for his followers to pray to gods besides Allah. Later, he claimed that Satan had put those words on his lips. Muhammad was, therefore, admittedly seduced by doctrines of Satan, just as Paul predicted. Fifth, Paul predicted that a time would come when people would not listen to sound doctrine. Instead, they would turn their ears away from the truth and listen to fables. An application of this prophecy can be made to Muslims today. While there are many Muslims who seek the truth scattered throughout the world, there are also many who don't seem to care what the evidence teaches. Instead, uh, instead of acknowledging that Islam is an untenable religion, they go to teachers like Jamal Badawi or Shabir Ali who tell them what they want to hear, tickling their ears. So these prophecies may all be applied to Muhammad and Islam. And when Muhammad claimed that other messengers of God had prophesied about him, he was correct. The problem is that these messengers predicted the rise of false prophets, not the rise of a new religion after Christianity. But we can actually find even more evidence that the Bible rejects the prophethood of Muhammad. Think about the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Here, Jesus tells us that God's love is universal. God loves everyone, male and female, young and old, black and white, Christian, Jew, Muslim, atheist. But what does the Quran say? Allah does not love those who exceed the limits, Surah 2.190. Allah does not love any ungrateful sinner, Surah 2.276. Allah does not love the unbelievers, Surah 3.32. Allah does not love the unjust, Surah 3.57. Allah does not love him who is proud, Surah 4.36. According to the Quran, God only loves those who first love him. So God's love is conditional in the Quran. This is very different. From Jesus' teachings. Now consider also the next verse in Matthew where Jesus says, If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This follows Jesus' command to love even our enemies. Christians are commanded to greet everyone in love. What does Muhammad teach? Let not the believers take the unbelievers for friends, Surah 3.28. Do not take the Jews and the Christians for friends. They are friends of each other, Surah 5.51.
What does Muhammad say about greeting non-Muslims? Do not give the people of the book the greeting first. Force them to the narrowest part of the road. And Muslims say, no, Muhammad loved Christians and Jews. Then why does he say in Sahih Muslim, number 4366, I will expel the Jews and Christians from the Arabian Peninsula and will not leave any but Muslims. Why does Muhammad attempt to humiliate Christians and Jews by forcing them to pay the jizya tax? And by the way, Christians and Jews have it good compared to the polytheists. So why is there such harsh treatment for all non-Muslims? Because as we've seen, Allah does not love us, according to the Quran and according to Muhammad. Now, Jesus said that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Since Muhammad's love for others was no better than that of the scribes and Pharisees, Muhammad was not a part of the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus himself tells us this. How then can Muhammad be God's last and greatest prophet when, according to Jesus, he can't be part of the kingdom of God at all? Earlier in this lecture, we saw that according to Moses in Deuteronomy 18.20, Muhammad cannot be a prophet of God. Now we see that according to Jesus in Matthew 5, Muhammad cannot be a prophet of God. So according to both Moses and Jesus, Muhammad was a false prophet. And yet the Quran tells Muslims to go to the Bible for confirmation. I wish more Muslims would. Muhammad tells us to go to the Bible to know whether he's a prophet. Well, we've gone to the Bible and we found no confirmation for Muhammad at all. All we found are clear arguments against his prophethood. So, we already have good reason to reject Muhammad as a prophet, and we haven't even gotten to the lectures on arguments against his prophethood. It's in the nature of Muslim arguments to self-destruct, and this may be one of the surest signs that Muhammad was a false prophet. Now, this wraps up our examination of the Quranic arguments for the prophethood of Muhammad. The arguments all failed rather miserably as soon as we examine them, and yet these are the arguments offered by Allah in the Quran to confirm his religion. In the coming lectures, we'll see whether Muslim apologists can do a better job than the Quran.